And if you own a bunch of Ethereum validators and you own a bunch of Layer 2 block production tokens, you could, in theory, organize multiple blocks within a block. It'll lead to a lot of interesting cross-roll-up stuff, especially now that we're seeing more ZK roll-ups because you could, in theory, do a lot more things atomically. In essence, you could actually arbitrage between ZK roll-ups within the same block. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Digaj, your host of Scraping Bits. And today I am with Control-C plus Control-V. <laughs> How's it going, man? It's a pleasure to have you on. It's going good. Um, I'm happy to be on. Yeah, happy to bring you on. Intro yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm a Control-C plus Control-V, commonly known as Control-C, if that's quicker. Mm-hmm. I am a developer. I'm in high school. I've developed, I, I mainly write in Viper and Solidity now, doing a lot of smart contract dev work. Previously, mm-hmm. I worked at Fuel Labs as a core node developer that was in Rust for Fuel's Layer 2 client. Mm-hmm. I have also done a lot of projects pretty much everywhere. Uh, I have contributions ranging from like Rust to Verkle, which is a, the Verkle tree implementation in Rust, oh. to a compiler for Yule to Polygon Maiden assembly. And I've actually written with two other guys a good part of Polygon Maiden's standard library in assembly. What is that? What is Maiden on Polygon? So, so Polygon has like their three ZK EBMs, right? They have Hermes, Her- or Hermes, if you want to be fancy. They have. <laughs> Nightfall, and yeah. they have Maiden. Maiden is like based off a company they bought out, which had a really super efficient proving system, and that was like its main claim to fame. Yeah, and I believe recently they've been working on some privacy-oriented designs okay. for Maiden. How did you get into all of that stuff? That's it's like a wide range of different fields. So how did you kind of jump from one to one to another? One way I've like jumped from things is because I'm in like high school. I'm still trying to like learn about a lot about computer science stuff. And so I found that it's like this project-based learning for computer science by just doing one item at each level in the stack. Mm -hmm. And so you basically just started from high level, which was like Solidity, right? And then you just went down even further. Yeah. So I I started like high level with Solidity. Then I went to core node stuff. And then I went to compiler stuff. Which it sounds weird, yeah. <laughs> but it actually makes more sense if you understand the VM like on an architectural level yeah, 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 before you start writing assembly for it. Yeah, definitely. I I took like a different route. I went basically Solidity to compiler, and now I'm just stuck in the compiler. Hole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see myself coming out. But yeah, how did how did you go from basically Solidity straight to nodes? That must have been like an extremely lengthy process to kind of understand what nodes do and how they work. It's definitely quite the leap. It's easier if you start like the virtual machine. Since like I had gotten very close with like Solidity assembly or Mm -hmm. Yule, Uh, it's not actually assembly. That's like a nit I have every single time. And I'm sure you probably feel somewhat similar. Mm -hmm. People call Yule assembly, but like it's actually not. That's just a tangent. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I'd started writing in Yule Plus, um, which had gotten me introduced to Fuel. Mm-hmm. Yule Plus, if you don't know, it's a superset of Yule, uh, which transpiles to Yule and then ultimately EVM opcodes. Mm-hmm. And so I had started writing Yule Plus mostly for fun. And that had gotten me introduced to Fuel Labs. And from there, when I started with them, I was either like, they're not really, it's an alternate VM design, if you're not aware. And so... I really just wanted to start working on 
I was given the option of like either the Sway compiler, which is a really good language, or the core node. And I thought that the core node would be more fun because it was something I wanted to learn more about. And so I was really given the opportunity to learn about more of this stuff through that. Right. And and how did you get into Fuel, basically? Twitter DM from John Adler. <laughs> there was a... Well, I had been annoying him on the Fuel Labs Discord before it was, like, big. It was, okay. like, 30 people. And, like, no activity. And every couple weeks, I would... Every few weeks, I would just, like, post a Yule Plus question and annoy him. And then eventually, <laughs> he got more familiar with me. And so when the Sway Alpha came out, he uh, he sent me an invite. It was called the Sway Or Bootcamp. If you don't, or I don't know if this is actually documented anywhere, but there's like a, the Sway Alpha. There's yeah. like December of 2021, mm-hmm. I want to say. It was me, LibEVM, and Transmissions 11. And we all got to like try out Fork and Sway for the first time. Oh, what? And so that was really my intro to Fuel. Yeah. And then eventually you just kind of like came on board, I guess, for all these interaction and being more more familiar with with john yeah it was actually when i met them at east denver and they found out i was in high school <laughs> oh wow they're like, <laughs> they're like oh they had tried to hire me before that full-time and i declined but i never gave them a reason why and then they finally understood when i had actually met them right yeah that, that would make sense but they, they still got you in the end they still got you in the end right oh yeah no that after that you know they're willing to help out and it's definitely a very fun place to work uh, a lot of really smart people. Mm-hmm. And then you left and basically started doing your own thing, right? Yeah, I've been doing a little bit of my own thing. I've a- After like leaving Fuel, I really mm-hmm. wanted to get back into smart contract work because I feel like there's a lot of people right now building shovels and not a lot of people digging for gold. And so like, mm-hmm. well, core node work is very rewarding from that perspective. Yeah, It kind of looked to me like, wow, I'm one of like a lot of people building out more infrastructure for a space that's already saturated like infrastructure supply. Yeah. And so I wanted to get back into the DAP side and building things that people would actually use and bring value to infrastructure. Yeah, I think infrastructure is quite interesting, but you could have t- taken multiple routes. Like You could have went into MEV, but you obviously didn't went to the DAP side. So. What what made you avoid that kind of field? <laughs> <laughs> MEV is an interesting field. For what it's worth, I did actually briefly have like a stint in there. I think the mm-hmm. biggest problem with it comes down to time invested. Yeah, it's not as good as people think it is. Yeah. I, I Thal Zero X kind of broke that with like his one Twitter post. He got a bunch of people to join in, thinking it was easy money. And it is in some spaces, but like that was mainly during a bull market, mm-hmm. and it's like wildly inconsistent. Yeah, you basically have to be elite and be in like a really big team or have some insane edge that other people don't. And everybody starts at zero, and you're still and you basically play catch up until you get to a point where you're at the same level as other people, which you know will take a while, like years. <laughs> or mumps <laughs> and then even then you still have no guarantee so it's like basically a ma- massive gamble at that point and then you have to find Not- your strategies and okay are you actually better than the people you just caught up to <laughs> it's not even as it stuff like that there's like an insane level of entrenchment like i don't know if you know this you know edgar route yeah so i think he's geo mapped out most of the nodes across like the continental united states and built his own block propagation network 
by like positioning specific nodes within clusters mm-hmm. and then setting their peers correctly. In competing with that, like to the point where I think he said he was faster than blocks route, and like that's an insane level to catch up to. Yeah, and you're looking at like several tens of thousands of dollars a month in infra costs to approach that. And if you're even like a millisecond slower, it doesn't matter. You're not getting, you know, you make no money versus making some money. I guess the only way to avoid competing with these people is if you have some insane, I guess alpha basically like no one literally no one else has it or you're just fighting some other small fish for their alpha um i guess not making big money and in a sense a short tail but long tail is the only way you can go when you first start or at least a chain where there's not a lot of people building out this kind of infrastructure a big thing too is you're competing against actors with more of an advantage than you would think like all those anon devs moonlighting for um lending protocols also happen to know how to build liquidation bots and just so happen to also be very intimately familiar with the code and how everything is structured. And so you're really competing against an unfair advantage. Well, yeah, completely unfair. Not just like kind of unfair. You're like miles. (laughs) It's like you just started high school and these people have already got like a decade of experience kind of stuff, Um, which can be the case in in some cases. Yeah. Especially like the people coming in with um, HFT experience. Uh, yeah. They like, I, I'm trying to remember. Wait, let me make sure he's like doxxed. Actually, I won't say his name and that fixes it. I know a guy <laughs> who's working on <laughs> uh, like MEV and on chain trading strategies. And when mm-hmm. I talked with him, he was like a HFT team manager. Yeah, I've had quite a lot of people reach out to me like a, a hedge funds coming trying to get into MEV, you know, massive prop firms. I, I had one of the biggest prop firms or HFT firms in Australia reach out to me to be their like lead dev in, in like their branch of MEV. Yeah, it was it's quite a lot. But yeah, sorry to cut you off. Oh yeah, no worries. Uh, yeah, I'm like just to see people like that joining in with teams who had like raised money, brought over engineers, and he is talking about like how you in HFT it's called like from the switchback I think or something like that. Where you don't even really have like an operating system for speed. Like you you hit an insane level pretty quickly that requires too extensive of knowledge to compete with on your own. Yeah. People think it's just kind of like a okay, let me build this quick bot to make millions of dollars overnight and then I'll be good. (laughs) It's honestly the hardest work you can do because it's not only development twenty four seven, it's competing twenty four seven. Because people are iterating 24-7. So you have to do the same, otherwise you're going to be left behind. So it's kind of like a full-time job. But like in a full-time, in a sense that you're working literally 24 hours. Like you have your alerts on on your phone. It pings you when someone's beating you or you're losing. And then you have to wake up in the middle of the night and upgrade. There are people, my understanding with a lot of the MEV people I have met, it is like a very intense lifestyle, not just a job, but like a full-on lifestyle Yeah, yeah. Exactly. with the intention that you will make enough to exit so you don't have to live like that for more than a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's very un- unsustainable long-term and you're basically not even living. Your base. You're, you're kind of just a robot. But yeah, it's interesting that you took the node route and didn't go down there, but you seem knowledgeable enough to, to know that it's quite difficult and you need like a team behind you to do this. Um, so yeah, what happened after that? What happened after the, the node stuff at Fuel and then building basically dApps? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think one thing when I 
came to like writing dApps again mm-hmm. is solidity is not a good language and it's not even like passable in my opinion. So at Fuel, we have our own language sway or we had our own language sway, which was like a Rust based DSL for smart contracts. Mm-hmm. And coming back to solidity, I just couldn't get it used to all of its quirks again. Mm-hmm. Like I know so much trivia about the solidity compiler that it's not even funny, but like, that doesn't make it fun to write. Like, especially when it came to isolated lending. So this was like very shortly. I had had the idea for Cog Finance, which is one of the main things I've been working on for like a while now. Yep. Um, as like an isolated lending protocol. But mm-hmm. after the Euler hack, I realized security is like a really big issue in lending. Yeah. And so I went to Viper to look for like simplicity. And one like one key thing I'm very proud of is I, th- I think we'll actually have a page where you can do an audit yourself even if you're like not very technical because the code is that readable. It's very simple. And Viper weirdly too is actually more efficient than solidity on a couple of layer twos, mm-hmm. um, depending upon the situation, just because it has so many nice creature comforts that make it easy to do things like you can like predefine uh, the value of a parameter in a function call. Yeah. So you can say like, this will be message dot sender if it's yeah, not yeah. specified. The only uh, weird that, thing about that, though, is what, from what I've noticed, sorry to cut you off again, but it, it basically creates like another function that you have to call. So it duplicates the code of that, though. So then, yeah, it's like a, a preset parameter, but it basically duplicates the, the function. So you have, I guess, it's more deployment cost, but I guess UX is a bit better. Um, but yeah, It's more think. deployment cost. But you have to remember on layer twos, your main cost is call data when calling your functions. And so if you can reduce your call data size by a third or two thirds while still remaining compliant with an interface, it's a huge benefit. True. But I guess on layer one, uh, if someone's doing that, it kind of makes, yeah, I guess there's, there's two different ways of looking at it. If you're willing to trade off deployment costs for execution. Which is what most people do with assembly now. Yeah, it makes sense. Because you, the whole goal is to have your users pay less gas and you paying like one up front. I mean, that's what a seaport is doing. That's why they're kind of going all assembly. And that's why you see MEV contracts also do that, basically just doing functions specifically optimized for one call instead of, I guess, having multiple strategies on a single contract that like adhere to multiple function selectors, I guess. It's more of just like super optimized for one specific use case and then copy and paste for another and copy and paste. And then it's just a massive contract with specialized function calls. But I do have a special hatred for MEV contracts because they keep self, you know, the self-destruct opcode. It's usage metrics are inflated so much because of MEV contracts. Oh yeah. Like it would have been so much easier to get it removed if they hadn't like shot up its usage by 300%. I did like the um, the functionality of it, even though it's like kind of detrimental in, in exploits. <laughs> I like those kind of uh, EVM special opcodes. They're like my favorite thing. Like external code copy, just like really bizarre but fun things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that kind of stuff. And like transaction origin. I'll go love those. <laughs> Sign extend. Sign extend, another favorite. <laughs> A crowd favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love that stuff. But yeah, tell me more about COG. How how did this all come about and why, why did you get into it? So COG is like a combination of a couple issues I saw with like isolated lending. Mm-hmm. So like 
even though it's very easy to launch like a Uniswap pool for a token when you make a new token, right? Like yeah. your shit coin, you can just spin up a Uniswap pool and you can trade it. Yeah. The goal is to have the same effect for lending because mm-hmm. right now there's a lot of tokens I see out there. What I, One major cause and catalyst for me was actually seeing coins like uh, Luna implode and thinking, I wish I could short that somewhere. Or like yeah. every time uh, I see someone delusional about Hex, I'm like, I wish I could short Hex easily. <laughs> and so the idea is to allow people to just spin up an isolated lending pool for any two tokens. You have one collateral token and one asset token. And you can anyone can just supply liquidity and then borrow with collateral. That's mm-hmm. like deemed acceptable. And so you get to choose your own risk. Because another thing is when I was like, in, I, I'm no longer a USDT truther, but when I was at one point, I was scared to use Aave because like having USDT as a collateral meant that like everything could get rugged on the protocol, right? Yeah. And so not being able to tailor that risk profile to what I wanted to at the time was like a big catalyst for me as well. Because if you're lending out something like Ether on a protocol like Aave, it's all or nothing. Now, I think with Emode, this is kind of different, but we, we can ignore that for now. The okay. idea, though, is you should be able to choose what collateral you want your lended asset to be exposed to. And so the idea was kind of to combine all this together. Yeah, so if you wanted to basically, wouldn't that just create fragmented kind of collateral pools there of the same token? Yes, and this is where one of my, like, or another idea came in for me. Okay. If you make all the lending pools ER4626 compliant, so they're like yield-bearing interest vaults, right. you actually can plug them into Yearn V3 as strategies. Mm-hmm. And so you can have a Yearn vault, which you tell all your acceptable collaterals, right? And then mm-hmm. it just balances your lended asset among all those pools. Balances the asset among all the pools. Oh, okay. So like, Based on like utilization. they're all fragmented, you can... Merge them all into a single pool. Kind oh. of. Okay. Where am I going wrong? Yeah. So like there are, each pool still remains like its own separate thing. Yeah. Yep, um, yep. But liquidity comes and goes from it as needed based yep. on the urine vault managing it. So people can basically come into the vault and add liquidity or I'm not familiar with yeah. the FYI. So. Oh, it's, it's just like a, it started out as a lending optimizer actually to move between Ovid or you deposit into a urine vault. And then it would move your money between Compound or Ave, depending upon which one had the best rate. This will do that for isolated cog pools. And then you can just choose what cog pools it'll do that among. Oh, interesting. Okay. And how long have you been basically building this? Are you building it by yourself or with multiple people? I've been building it with HypeQuant and then another Anon dev. And we've been building, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. It's like been a couple months now, like three four maybe even five honestly i don't know it's been a while yeah yeah and and what's the kind of like go-to strategy are you trying to turn this into a startup or just something public tooling or public contract it it's kind of like a startup DeFi protocol i'm trying to think that being said like i just want to build it and see what people think i think a lot of people get trapped when building failing projects by continuing to build them and thinking oh, it needs this feature. If only it had this feature, we'd get users. Which, like, isn't really that true because crypto users will tolerate so much that they really shouldn't tolerate. 
mm-hmm. in terms of like UX barriers or lack of features. And so I want to build it and I want to see what happens and I want to give it a shot because I don't think there is good isolated lending around. And so I want to see if, you know, the market actually wants it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, are you going to have like some previews and stuff so people can kind of like test it out and see if it's product market fit? Yes, we plan on having um, like a testnet launch coming up soon. Audits for July 31st, and then we'll be launching with Scroll on mainnet in September. So if you want to farm your scroll airdrop, please deposit into COG. (laughs) (laughs) Deposit the COG. Interesting. Prime the gears. We also have Xerox Carnation as our tokenomics advisor. I should mention that. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you're going to have a token as well. I usually like to avoid announcing like tokens early, but we also, one of the key features is it'll essentially accrue protocol-owned liquidity in times of volatility. I'll try not to get too technical on why that's like an amazing thing, but essentially there's an attack on proportional integral derivative interest rate controllers. And the way we've implemented protocol owned liquidity is it makes it non advantageous to perform this attack. Okay. And what is by nature, you just um, essentially, if you're like a massive whale on a tiny isolated lending pool where right. you're lending out like 90% of the tokens, right? What you can do is once someone takes out a loan of like half the tokens, you can, as yourself, deposit collateral and take out another massive loan. Now, this will spike up the interest rate for all borrowers. But because you're the biggest mm-hmm. lender, you'll get all the interest you're paying yourself back. And the other outstanding loan will be paying a much higher interest rate. Got you, for sure. And the solution that you propose? Is if the interest rate changes by a certain amount, let's say like 10% within three days, you uh, change the protocol fee to 100% uh, for three days. And so what this does is when the whale, you know, takes out that massive loan spiking interest, they don't actually make any profit for three days. And that three days gives time for mercenary liquidity to see a lending APR of like a thousand percent and decide to go deposit into that pool, which then brings the interest rate back down to a more reasonable level. Interesting. Hmm. And nobody's done this before. Nope. Yeah. I wonder if there's any kind of a little long tail opportunities that occur here. There's definitely a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, Tarun uh, is actually just one of the people who got me thinking about this, he has a paper on it. I'll have to look for that. But he has a paper which like explains this attack. And one of the solutions he mentioned was protocol-owned liquidity, although not necessarily in this way. But I mm-hmm. think that it's definitely really interesting to try out. And having protocol-owned liquidity also fixes a lot of the liquidity fragmentation you see. Mm-hmm. Because if each pool has like a certain amount of pool-owned liquidity, it just means that there's more there's like more liquidity that stays within the system. Yeah, protocol-owned liquidity is definitely a an amazing thing for any protocol that deals with liquidity because the traditional liquidity provision is basically renting out liquidity, right? And you're giving rewards in in a way of like MasterChef, I guess, for example. When times get rough people just take out all the liquidity and then say goodbye to slippage, basically, and the conversion rates. So protocol-owned liquidity is really like a a padding that's permanent, I guess. And it ensures that you you basically own the liquidity instead of renting it. So how, how do you... The way I've always seen it. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I was going to say, the way I've always seen it is <laughs> protocol, owned liquidity, uh, protocol owned liquidity transforms the protocol from like the platform to the counterparty. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how do you basically like obtain this protocol owned liquidity? Charge fees. So you charge like, you essentially take 100% of the interest earned during these periods of volatility. And that accumulates as protocol owned liquidity. Then there's also a small fixed fee for taking out a borrow. Mm-hmm. Um, which just prevents some like minor griefing stuff. And then there's also just a flat protocol fee on interest earned. And then it's always so three days that this, this kind of uh, this fee happens. And then after three days, it's, it's back to normal. Yes. I am still toying around with the time period window though. Um, so it's like not set in stone. Uh, so one of the reasons we actually wrote this stuff in Viper yeah. is you can plug it into a Jupyter notebook and so you actually can like then import all the uh, Python visualization libraries and you can make some really fun graphs and then toy around with parameters like this. So you're basically spending all your time on COG. Are you, are you doing any like kind of freelancing at the moment or just... I'm doing freelancing Ooh, for an up, upcoming <laughs> LSD protocol, which will be launching. And then I'm doing... I've I recently started working at Delve as well mm-hmm. on their new fixed rate bond trading... Or, Fixed rate yields trading or fixed rate yield AMM. That's the correct way to describe it. Fixed rate, which is yield. like for the best way to think of it is you can essentially feed in any ER four six two six yield source and sell or buy bonds based off that. Oh, okay. So it's kind of like an exchange for bonds. Yes, it's exactly what it is. An exchange for bonds, and it makes a, a couple key improvements on top of Element V one. And I, I think it was definitely really interesting for me. And I think fixed rates kind of coming back now that like uh, interest rates are higher from the Fed and we have like more liquid staking protocols. I'm super curious of how you got into all this, this kind of like, what would you call this? Like economic theory or something? I mean, like Ponzunomics, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you even get in, into all this? I remember this is the kind of stuff I avoided. So I, I really, I think what it was like math hair heavy and I'm not good at math, so kind of just steered away but yeah how, how did you go get into this stuff I, th- I think i mainly got into it when i was like trying to be an active member of sushi swap and so like i, I you know i was like i need to learn everything about DeFi, and so right. i did like one really big proposal push and through that i started thinking about because it was about reshaping the dow mm-hmm. and so that got me thinking a lot about like tokenomics and then especially um, Sam Bacha from Manifold Finance. Yep, yep. He's actually sent me a lot of really good stuff on that. Mm-hmm. And just like reading things he sent me, I've like accumulated a good bit of knowledge because uh, he's really deep in the MEV space, of course. And so like then you start thinking more about actors, incentives, yep. and, uh, things like that. So basically you're just doing freelancing and, and COG. Is there anything on kind of like your mind for the future of dabbling into... Apart from obviously Cog, MEV on Cog. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> do you do you intentionally think of uh, I guess MEV solutions or even creating basically MEV from scratch? Because that's what basically DApps do. That DApps are, are what forms MEV. So are, are you keeping that in mind, or you're not really like worried about it too much? I'll give a little bit of alpha for like the uh, people you know listening in that do MEV. I think the future is multi-layer MEV between like layer one and layer two ordering. And so with that, I think your main conclusion comes down to 
whoever can produce the first layer two with decentralized block production. Like that ultimately will be the winner because it'll drive MEV, which will more or less drive users over to that roll up. That's like a big reason I'm actually kind of bearish optimism because I think it's going to take them a long time to get that done. And I think someone else will probably work something out before then. And by fully decentralized, basically block production, what do you mean by that? The model I've seen a lot of people throw around is essentially a layer two token, which Mm -hmm. you stake. And then that gives you the right to be sequencer for a block every n blocks. And so so the idea... Go ahead, sir. So you can, giving that knowledge, you can basically just have if you have a bunch of money you could basically create a bunch of accounts and kind of guarantee x amount of blocks in x amount of, in y amount of time right yes and if you own a bunch of ethereum validators and you own a bunch of layer 2 block production tokens you could in theory organize multiple blocks within a block yeah you basically get like massive control at that point so how, how does uh, decentralizing it work then well, decentralizing it just means that you can do that instead of Arbitrum, <laughs> you know, because Arbitrum will take like their sequencer fee or whatever. Uh-huh. A decentralized block production means you actually start getting that fee. Oh, okay. But I mean, it could still happen, right? Like if if these kind of like builder tokens, if that's what you call them, if I still have my validator and I still want to make multiple accounts and, and have these kind of block producers, I could still do that just in a decentralized way where I get the fee. But this, the same thing can still happen where basically someone can just take control of the network. Well, X amount of the network. I, I still think it's like going to be ultimately better though because it means layer two tokens actually provide value. And being able to build your own blocks for layer two is really powerful. And I think uh, it'll lead to a lot of interesting cross roll-up stuff, especially now that we're seeing more ZK roll-ups because you could, in theory, do a lot more things atomically. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, if you control, like, ZK Sync and Scroll, for an example, and Ethereum, like, all those probabilities line up, you'll make the next block for each. You could order a transaction on Scroll that would bridge from Scroll to Ethereum, then you could order a transaction on Ethereum that would deposit into the ZK Sync bridge. Then you could order a transaction on ZK Sync that would deposit onto the ZK Sync chain from the other side, right? Mm-hmm. And so, in essence, you could actually arbitrage between ZK rollups within the same block. Yeah, as a person that's basically done this whole chain, they can predetermine what, what's going to happen. Yes. On like a much larger scale now. I feel like that's kind of bad though, but I think that goes into the way of decentralization, right? Well, it's it's definitely like very scary if you start thinking about all of the externalities that creates. Yeah. But it's also like very interesting. I think it's still definitely better than a centralized sequencer. Yep, yep, yep. But I don't know how much better that'll be. At least you won't be mining Arbitrum WebSockets though. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I think the MEV game it definitely gets a uh, deep into who basically controls the network. Um, it gets it gets quite interesting when you get to like the node level um, and like the block builders of how much transaction inflow they have. Like especially the question of how do we remove sandwiches or prevent them from being included all the time. It's such a difficult question because they provide more transaction flow than let's say a positive arbitrage, which fixes 
the prices between two exchanges because that's only one transaction versus a sandwich, which is two transactions. So obviously the builder is going to want to take the sandwich over the the, um, the arbitrage, but it also depends on how much money they make from it as well in an incentive standpoint. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm also curious to, to, to see how MEV will work on ZK as well for anonymous transactions, right? Yeah, it'll be very interesting. Well, uh, like scroll itself is a ZK EVM, so it'll be just like the EVM. But on yeah. like Aztec, things get really interesting. The one thing that also makes me curious about Aztec is, if I recall correctly, their VM3, I think it's called, or they're just calling it Aztec, which I think is kind of dumb, but on like a side note, it's UTXO based. And UTXO and MEV are very interesting because you can mm-hmm. essentially like very easily verify that two bundles won't collide with each other. And so if you do that, you can actually have like multi-bundle blocks fairly easily. And you can't do that with, with current... Why, why can't you do that with current EVM? I think you can. Uh, and Flashbots might actually have something for that now. It just becomes easier with UTXOs. You also can execute them in parallel if you know that they don't contend on state, which does is very nice. Yeah, I'm also curious to see how auditing will work post post deployment on, on ZK as well. Because then you have transactions that are <laughs> you have black hats that are basically um anonymous. <laughs> yeah. In a way. I, I predict Certix revenue is gonna go up four hundred percent. Four hundred percent for ZK. <laughs> Isn't that always the meme they hack their clients? <laughs> they approve it and then hack after. <laughs> they get paid on both ends. It's the ultimate mev. <laughs> Auditor extractable value. <laughs> Speaking about um, auditing mev, have you seen uh, the public contests um, and their their bot races? Uh, for what? I'm actually kind of interested now. Yeah, so basically they're doing, you know, like the public contests, how they have you know hundreds of people competing. And they all kind of find these low-hanging fruits that are just dilute the pool entirely. So what they introduced was a, a bot race, which, um, what does it do? It basically, like, all these bots have, like, a certain time period where they find as many, basically, vulnerabilities as possible, information or whatever, you know, whatever severity. And then that, whatever that is, or what they find, becomes out of scope. And so all these people that were diluting the pool originally, like let's say 100 people found the same kind of severity bug, same exact bug, and now they've just diluted that whole pool. And someone, let's say they all found like a high or like a medium. So let's say 100, 100 people found the same medium, but one person found a low. That one person that found a low gets paid more than all the people that, <laughs> that found the medium. So in order to solve that problem, they made bot races, which basically... Okay, they, they automatically find these low-hanging fruits so they're no longer in scope and people no longer can dilute the pool. So they're more incentivized to find unique findings, right? Um, Code Farina was like such underrated as MEV because every top auditor I kind of knew of didn't really audit code. They just wrote really good static analyzers. There, I, like, I know there's like a couple auditors who like would just go through like pretty much every Code Farina contest you know, you run a bot that like does static analysis on top of the contracts, generates a report, you cross-reference it a couple times, look, see if there's anything else, and then just submit that. And so like 
people would just be developing their own static analyzers in private to win code for arena contests. Yeah, yeah. And now they've built like bot races to kind of uh, get rid of them. But these bots aren't really, aren't too sophisticated though. Like they're not finding, you know, tons of vulnerabilities, but they are, I think it's all, they only get like 10% of the pool as well. So it's not, it's not a big portion. Um, Yeah. If it was more, it'd be interesting, but. I mean, that's what I was planning to do as well, and what I am doing. <laughs> Instead of a static analyzer, it's it's like a, a dynamic analysis tool. So it actually executes the code and creates like the the state and the context initially, and then goes through it all. It's yeah, it's quite complex, but it's a it's a good task to get involved in. Um, and you also have done like compiler dev, haven't you? Yeah. Have you ever like been actually, interested in that stuff? Or I have been. I've always been like interested in like code gen side of the compiler more. Um, okay, like to get like a quick. Oh, what do you, you say? Sorry, like forward engineering, like generating code. Yes, because like I've always been closer to like the VM and Node side, so it's yeah. always been more interesting for me to like, you know, work on that. Also, parsing is never very, really interesting because it's like a lot of weird edge cases and just import this library and define grammar rules. Yeah, and then AST is like so difficult to visualize that it's never any fun to do. <laughs> okay. I'm like a pretty big fan of all kind of like analysis, pretty interested in like the recon side, like getting basically getting as much information as you can about something. And then I'm super interested in like dynamic analysis or like fuzzing and symbolic execution. Have you tried any of that stuff? Uh, for cog, I've actually been writing a lot more state machine tests than usual. Fuzzing, fuzzing. I've like kind of gone on a curve on because I really do like fuzzing but I feel like it's over-treated as some holy solution when, like, <laughs> it's really not that great. Like, I for think... library functions, yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. But for most contracts, its chance of generating a meaningful sequence of vulnerable actions is much lower than compared to something like a state machine. You essentially, like, define a list of actions that you can do on your contracts, whether it's, like, add liquidity, take out a loan, yeah. repay a loan. And then it'll randomly execute those steps in different orders to try and get it to violate an invariant. Got you. So it's like a sequence of different kind of functions. It's like it's like um, function fuzzing, basically, like function ordering fuzzing, but like in a predetermined way, not kind of random at all. Exactly. And so I, I think it like it still gets that edge case catching, but it's yeah. a lot more meaningful in how it's going about doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's called state machine uh, testing. Interesting. Yeah, I heard. Um, I think it was. Ah, uh, who was it? I had someone on before, but that's what they were doing at Seaport. Uh, oh, Horsefax. Yeah. So the symbolic engine, I think that's what you said. The fuzzing engine. Yeah, the fuzzing engine that they were building there was that exact thing. So they had a pre preset. I guess they had like an enum of different actions that you could take. It's like a buy order, sell order, whatever. And it was just thrown into a generative kind of thing where it it sequenced them in different orders. um, And that was quite effective. But they built that in-house for that specific thing. So I think it is quite, quite good. So you built that from scratch or were you just like kind of porting it from something else? So fun little fact about Viper, it uses, uh, we use Titanoboa, which is a Python Viper interpreter, which as a little side note, uh, I want to brag on behalf of Charles, 
it's faster and more feature complete than Foundry. It's faster than Foundry, wow. even though it's written in Python, because Viper AST is so similar to Python AST. Mm-hmm. It can translate to Python AST on the fly. And so it's getting executed uh-huh. on like native instructions uh, and Solidity oh, and Foundry okay. can't really match that. And then it supports things like coverage and it integrates with PyTest. So you can use all the PyTest and Python testing libraries to test your Viper code. Interesting. Yeah, because Viper is basically Python, but for blockchain. Exactly. Like they're very similar. Yeah. Interesting. So it's actually faster than Foundry, even though it's in Python. I know, yeah. And the only way Foundry can really match that is if it translated Solidity to LLVM, which would be a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think that's worth doing. Like Foundry's already fast enough. Yeah. And uh, LLVM is very difficult. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, what makes an LLVM? It's like, um, aren't there just like a lot of instructions to support? I know there's a lot of instructions to support as far as I understand. And like not a lot of people are familiar with it or the chance that you would have some like some subtlety change when transpiling Solidity to LLVM that'd mm-hmm. be different from the EVM doesn't really make it worth going from like two seconds to 0.5 seconds. Yeah, I guess it's like a ton of work just to have like a marginal difference. Well, I guess it's not. I mean, it's a big difference, but the amount of work that would take to, to kind of implement that would be quite severe, right? You would have to write a new backend for the Solidity compiler. Yeah, so, yeah. nobody wants to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe they can they find They would rewrite SoulC and Rust before they did that. Oh, that would that would be quite good. <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. But probably won't see that happen for some time. I'm pretty sad that they wrote it in, a, I think it was in C, right? C or C++? C++. Yeah, nah. <laughs> I was like thinking of going and reading into it, but I don't know C++. And I didn't want to learn C++ just to learn the compiler. I've heard this anecdotally. It may not be true, but the rumor I had heard is that they wrote it, they wrote it the way they did, so it'd be a very readable compiler. But then they wrote it in C++. So, like, it doesn't implement that many optimizations on a compiler level to keep the compiler readable. But the compiler is in C++ anyway, so, like, that doesn't really help. (laughs) It's it's just like, okay, we have good intentions, but uh, the execution was bad. (laughs) Yup. And, like, I, I have so many complaints about the Solidity compiler, one of which being... You know, like, um, if you have nested mapping, so that's, like, really gas inefficient? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. They should just combine the keys and hash both keys at the same time. It would break the slot format, like, the way it can be expected now. Yeah. But it would be so much more efficient that I just want it to happen. Yeah, I wonder how many people would do that, though. I know I did, actually. I did it a few times. And I guess with ERC20... Yeah, even with ELC20, it, it has nested mappings. Not strong. Yeah, with allowance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wonder, oh, it's kind of like unfortunate that you can't really optimize the compile like this or make your own. You have to make, you have, they would have had to make all all these decisions basically at day one, right? They, they, they could make a breaking change now. And honestly, they're not at version one yet. And I think they should. There's a lot of weird quirks like that, though, that exist. One, another one of them that's actually fairly interesting. So Viper stores all of its mem- or variables in memory. Solidity yeah. stores them on the stack, right? That's why you traditionally get stacked too deep. One quirk of this is that in like balance of function calls, 
it's cheaper in Viper than it can ever be in Solidity because the value goes from call data straight to memory rather than onto the stack. Then it's like already in memory. So when you do the hash value or when you do the hash for mapping, you don't have an additional move there. And so it's like marginally cheaper. An additional move. Hmm. I mean, it wouldn't be that much more expensive. Like, oh, wait. It's like, it's like 50 gas or something. But like, you know. It's, yeah. It's, but like <laughs> when you're thinking about that, it's not that much. <laughs> It's, not like a it's Viper beating Solidity, and Viper was always known as gas inefficient. That's why it surprised me. Mm-mm. Yeah, I remember there was like a time on Twitter where just people came and started mentioning Viper was just popping off, and it's like way more optimized than uh, Solidity. But then you also have like Solidity inline assembly, Solidity, I think it's called that. You know that repo in like pure yeah. inline by vectorized. Yeah, which is like now kind of the standard for whatever for, are like, you on the op- discord for it i'm not no <laughs> so they're, even doing a, they're doing like a public order for it as well with um spearbit's new thing cantina i think they raise like 100k oh, yeah they are yeah oh yeah. yeah that's the optimism public uh goods thing right with like velodrome yeah, and yeah, all yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I was even talking to him before. I'm like, okay, why don't you just write pure assembly? But integration with inline assembly is much easier than you know custom assembly stuff. At least it's, or or it's actually more optimized. I can't remember. Or it's both. Yeah, inline assembly is quite good though. It, it is the one thing I actually wanted to get uh, JT Riley to do is inline Huff libraries inside of Viper because then you would have all the readability of Viper and all the ease of use but you would have something more efficient than uh, assembly blocks. Okay, but imagine trying to manage the stack when like <laughs> halfway through a function call. <laughs> Viper doesn't use the stack, though. It stores variables in memory. Oh, okay. But then you can't actually be more efficient. Then how, how would that... Yeah, that's breaking my it's mind. It's not actually that much better. I was talking with Charles, too, and he's like... Yeah, but then your compiler can't do any optimization passes on this blob of bytecode. And so it's like not really that much better. But uh, yeah, because the whole, idea. the whole like point of using half instead of like assembly or solidity is because you can do all your calculations in the stack instead of memory. And basically, instead of, yeah, yeah exactly. So you can like dupe multiple times. And then do your calculations on that and swap it in and out. Whereas memory, you're just reading and writing to memory all the time, which is, I guess, fine. But even just like expanding the memory to what you need. Like, let's say you had like five different variables, you're going to have to expand it, you know, 32 bytes times five, unless you bit pack them all. But good luck with that, making something stand of that, you know? Well, bit. Bit packing doesn't even make that much sense on the EVM because, like, you you have a 256-bit word size, so for it to be useful, it has to be in the full 256 bits anyway. Yeah, but then, you, like, if you're talking about, like, a struct and you have, like, a UNT A and, I don't know, like, a UNT 128, you know, so forth and so on. Or, like, you know, an address, UNT 8, UNT 8, Boolean, that kind of stuff, then it makes sense. But yeah, anything over that doesn't make sense. On a side note, actually, is it weird to write your like memory addresses in hex instead of like decimal? 
you'll memory addresses in hex. I, I mean, I've been using Huff for so long. I'm now, I can't even go back to like normal solidity. <laughs> I'm at the point of no return. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's like good though. You know, like it's yeah. solidity is something we should abandon and not die. <laughs> Are you trying to pill me into Viper? I am because, you know, <laughs> when you need the efficiency, you write in Huff. When you need the readability and security, you write in Viper. Now, why would you write in Solidity? Why would you write in Viper? Just go Huff. Sir. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you want to re-implement my lending pool implementation of roughly 1,200 lines of Viper into Huff? I could do that. Yeah, Contract me at nibbleandbytes.com, not sponsored. Having said that, I think it's getting to a close. <laughs> Um, okay now now try paying for the audit though that's like if as soon as we get like generic bytecode analysis auditing tools then huff can become a lot uh better i believe oh yeah that's also what i'm working at at nibbleatbytes.com not sponsored so yeah hopefully in the future if you if you get into that then hit, hit me up uh happily supply but until then thank you so much for jumping on the podcast i think this is a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot because I'm pretty stupid, but um, yeah, thank you so much. I learned a lot as well. <laughs> yeah, and what, sure. what year are you in, in high school, if you want to announce that? Oh, I mean, like, I'll be a senior next year or this year. So, like, it's not that. Like, I'll oh, be okay. out pretty quickly, but, like, it's not that. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay, not okay. like 12. Okay, so. <laughs> like, fresh <laughs> out of primary school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did this in my middle school gym class. <laughs> in your, your in your computer science class, just like instead of scratch, you just code. It's actually kind of funny. There's another kid I met uh, who I won't dox, but I, he's like somewhat well known. He audits for like a firm, and he was a freshman. So like, there are legitimately high schools with just like crypto devs everywhere. Crazy. I wish I did that when I was in in high school. I look back at it every day. I like we raise college tuition three hundred percent, and this is what we get. (laughs) People basically skipping college. (sighs) Anyway, man, yeah, it's it's been quite good. Um, Yeah, yeah, man, it was lovely having you on. Thank you so much for spending the time, and even great to meet you as well. This is our first conversation. No, it's great to uh, be on. I'll talk to you later. See, and if anybody has anyone they want to recommend for the podcast, DM me on Twitter at Dugachi or at Scraping Bits or send an email to scrapingbits at gmail.com. But until then, this has been Dugachi with Scraping Bits and goodbye. <laughs>